Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... <laughs> These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello again to all you discerning listeners who, one, take your politics barbecued, prefer your academic research well done, and want your salad interestingly sprinkled with current affairs and raisined argument. I'm Mark Kenny, and when I'm not making bad barbecue puns, I work at ANU's Australian Studies Institute, where, in cahoots with Policy Forum, we turn out this podcast weekly. So, are we on the tip of a global recession? And at home, is the promised budget surplus, which, in a bizarrely back-to-the-future kind of way, was already delivered next year when announced, has that now gone for all money? Things are suddenly pretty damn perilous. The Reserve Bank meets again this week, in fact probably will have met by the time you're listening to this, and most analysts were saying another rate cut, while likely, would not come before April. I'm not so sure. I sat with Governor Philip Lowe at his National Press Club address a few weeks back and noted how finely he balanced the likely hit to GDP growth from the novel coronavirus. Because it had no other guide, the board conservatively tied the corona outbreak to the past SARS outbreak of 2003, also a coronavirus. Lowe noted that its impact was relatively short and sharp and able to be quickly recovered from. But it has been a critical three weeks since. Last month, it had become clear that the COVID-19, as it's now called, is bigger and badder than SARS. The government has triggered its emergency response plan and has flagged targeted and scalable economic assistance to affected sectors of the economy, although notably not necessarily the education sector at the moment, which the government seems to be arguing is kind of uh, sufficiently liquid to absorb any cost. Globally, economic confidence is teetering on the abyss. Travel plans are being abandoned, conferences, sporting events, right up to and including the Olympics in Japan, are being reassessed. That country has already closed its schools for March. In the epicentre, China's Hubei province, a Honda factory lies completely dormant, unable to get components, just one example of countless businesses where supply chains are severed. Aviation, tourism, hospitality, higher education, all are being savaged. Australia may yet succumb to the pandemic in a significant way, or it may not, but escaping an economic downturn, especially given our integration with China, seems far less likely. In amongst all of this, the Prime Minister has failed to adequately explain his government's scandalous sports grants program, which with each revelation keeps going from bad to worse. And then there's the climate policy mess, the ratcheting up of national security laws and the ratcheting down of press freedom and more. 
Now, to help us trawl through these issues, I'm joined, as always, by political scientist, Dr. Maria Teflaga. Hi, Maria. And hello to you, Professor Mark Kenny. Congratulations <laughs> on your promotion. Thank you very much. And also Will Grant, a man whose very name invokes windfall gains for which we have not had to go to work. Welcome back to you, Will Grant. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. And I'm delighted to say hello to former Press Gallery colleague, that is when I was there, and fellow Insiders Couchie, Annika Smethurst. Hi there, Annika. You're, of course, the political editor for the News Corp Sundays. Annika, I might start with you. What do you think about this government? It seems to be defined very largely by events. When we think about it, it's, you know, the response to drought, the response to fires and floods, its response to this sports rorts controversy and some other things surrounding uh, Angus Taylor before that, and now the coronavirus. We don't really have much else by which we can sort of gauge this government other than the surplus. And as I mentioned, that may have uh, already gone out the window. So, you know, what do you think? Is that a fair assessment of where the government is now? So it's the uh, events, dear boy, events, isn't that the the yeah. saying that uh, this is, you know, what happens to governments? And I do find it interesting that when they were elected back in May, uh, there was, um, as many governments have committed to doing, uh, you know, saying they wouldn't be out every day announcing things. It wasn't going to be a government of announceables and 24-hour media cycles. And uh, here we are. It happens to all of them. You can try as much as you want to uh, steer it the way you want to do. And that can be no policies. That can be just governing. That can be not a lot of legislation or it can be a truckload. But uh, they have obviously had a lot of their plans derailed. But in terms of what plans they had, you're right. I think they're a bit light on in terms of uh, policy. They didn't expect to win and they've been sent back to the drawing board in many ways. But should they even have had a lot of ideas when they came in in May, I think you have to be in situations like this uh, resilient and a bit elastic. And one example that we have seen, which was almost their only policy really was to improve the budget and get it back in black, as they said, and those mugs said yeah, they, that they were trying to It was in black. <laughs> <laughs> it was almost in black, I think, is the point. And look, that really could have been uh, Josh Frydenberg's Wayne Swan moment, you know, coming out and saying that and, and it all falling apart. But I think he will be saved in, in some ways by the fact that unprecedented bushfires and now an unprecedented, well, in some ways, global pandemic like this, I think um, he perhaps won't have the political hit that we saw when other governments have failed to deliver. But the task ahead of them is huge. And uh, to think that this is going to go away soon, um, both the ongoing effect of the fires and more sort of environmental issues that um, will be costly coupled with uh, global things we can't stop, like China, and this has just proven how close and intertwined we are with China and whether we feel safe doing that in the future, given, you know, they cough and we get a cold, as the analogy goes. So Mm. I think it really has highlighted some of the big problems, um, not just this government, but successive governments have had in Australia and their sort of reliance on other things. And they were really hoping to avoid these sort of events and they've been shown up. Well, they've been shown up, but in some ways they've been arguably saved, Maria. I mean, uh, that's probably an overly cynical thing to say because no one wants the world to have to deal with the coronavirus, for example, and no one would have wanted the bushfires. But really, uh, they, when you look at the kind of legislative agenda, we've talked about this before, but, you know, um, bringing back the union busting, you know, ensuring integrity bill, pursuing this religious freedom so-called crisis, which we've discussed here before, is really not a crisis at all. You know, that pretty much amounted to you know, the main guts of their of their agenda, other than those sort of uh, 
broad things that Annika was talking about, you know, a strong economy and a strong budget. But really, it's the events that have given them something to talk about. Oh, yeah. I think I think this government has been largely defined by what it's against. And I guess in response to, um, yeah, events, it's, it's a, a government that has been entirely defined negatively, actually, if you sort of think about it um, in that sense. I guess what is kind of interesting about the position of the government at the moment is, I guess, this contrast between their front-footedness on the coronavirus, which is all to the good, it's important to protect public health, uh, with their their lack of front-footedness on the bushfire crisis, which sort of raises two kind of interesting points, like which types of expertise and advice that the government considers credible and likes to listen to, and that might reflect the kinds of machinery already in place, the machinery of government already in place. There is an independent authority that effectively advises the government on pandemics that has been around since, I think, 2005. Compared to, and then the other one is this discussion on public health, uh, pollution and climate change, heat, uh, the smoke, like these, these are all significant and profound public health problems. Uh, and very tangible, of course. Exactly. Some of them are very well documented. For example, the, the form of uh, lung cancer that comes from not smoking is primarily caused by pollution. Uh, for example, you know, the impact of uh, smoke on large populations, like we're about to find out what that what that will do to people's health. We know people die from excess heat, and so I, I guess to me, as a as an observer of politics, it's fascinating to see these known and tangible, measurable, actually happened public policy crises and events, uh, these slow moving train wrecks versus the sort of the new and intimidating threat of coronavirus, which which may actually not prove to be the same kind of long-term problem or systemic problem. I just think this is a really interesting contrast. Can I can I just add in there that I, I love the um, the parallel between coronavirus and the bushfires as how the government has responded over the last three months to these um, these problems. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, the the government was completely flat-footed by bushfires, but then we get to coronavirus and they're able to take action and showing action. But it's very much it's a it's a classic problem. You know, coronavirus, it's a new and emergent threat. We have a um, hundred years of precedent of this sort of problem and governments respond around the world and they have a hundred years of precedent in how to respond to these things. And they exactly. do fairly well or not perfectly, but it's all within that spectrum. It's a long way from a wicked problem. You know, coronavirus, COVID-19 is a bad problem. And a lot of people are going to suffer, but it's not hyper complicated. You know, really, we put up quarantine and when it comes down, we do the best we can to keep wash our hands. Bushfires is, is right in the midst of climate change, which is an absolutely wicked problem and a wicked problem indeed for this government in particular. I think that's right. But I think one of the reasons the government have responded so strongly is because they responded so poorly to the bushfires. Yeah, I agree with And that. I think yeah. if you talk to Agreed. ministers, they might not admit it publicly, but they know they didn't get it right with the bushfires. And they're loving the fact that they can now... Respond. They Internally, can be simply doing things. Even as these things were happening during December and January, they were well aware that this wasn't going well for them and that they were on the back foot. And because they could never get in front and they were always trying, they were coming from behind. Even when we called in the army, it, it sort of didn't matter because it was done so late mm. that it was just so impossible to get in front of that. The cat was out of the bag. So I think, you know, internally they would have said, well, this, this isn't going to happen again. We're going to be ahead of everyone else. If the World Health Organization isn't going to call a pandemic, hell, we'll do it, uh, which mm. was their response the other day. Now, 
I think there's a fine line between causing too much panic. The government have to be very sort of keep calm and carry on. Uh, and there is a risk that if you scare people with that sort of language, that people start stocking up and, and things like this and wearing face masks when we're continually told we don't need to do that in Australia yet. But I think the reason they're acting like this is not only because, yes, it's a, they're very different issues in terms of politically, but I just think they know they didn't do well the first time and they've been handed a second go and they're not going to stuff it up again. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, I mean, I think both of these points are very good points and, and not mutually exclusive, of course. Uh, but there's no doubt that uh, Morrison and, and co are about getting on the front foot in this case very quickly, almost, uh, you know, as a, as a function of how much pain they took from being tardy on the bushfire crisis. I mean, him going, the PM going on holidays was the, you know, the cherry on the top of that uh, from from a point of view of, uh, you know, a a, a, a disaster. Uh, and uh, because it fed into what was already the suspicion of many voters in terms of the government's view on, you know, climate change and the severity of it. You know, we had McCormack before that, of course. In fact, during the time, I think, when he was acting prime minister, uh, you know, basically saying that climate change should not be mentioned in the context of the bushfires, that this was, the, the you know, to do so was the ravings of inner city green lunatics and, you know, that sort of language. So there was a, you know, that really fed into a government weakness uh, on this which has come along quite quickly after the bushfire crisis, um, this coronavirus. It's all, it, it has been very much about you know erring on the side of action rather than not you know not doing so. And um, as you say, well, there are good public policy reasons for doing that. Uh, and uh, the government has been ahead of the WHO, which has you know occasioned some interesting commentary, particularly Peter Hutch's piece on the weekend, sort of suggesting that the WHO is itself subject to political pressure from large governments, and in this case is being pressured not to step forward, not to make that pandemic announcement, for example, because of the pressure it's getting from China. Whereas in Australia, we've pretty much declared it. You know, this is imminently to be called a pandemic by the WHO, and we're certainly treating it like that now. Yeah. Look, I think I think classically different sorts of issues, but you can, you know, grabbing grabbing action by the horns, diving in and doing something is something that you, what government wouldn't do that? What government wouldn't grab the opportunity um, to show themselves doing things? Getting in front of the, the international community, it doesn't bear them any real political consequences here, and they get this chance. And it kind of looks smart in hindsight, like when, when you start yeah. seeing uh, multiple deaths in other countries where they haven't perhaps uh, had those kinds of measures in place, you know, there seems to be no downside in terms of either the public health benefits from acting early, nor indeed the, the you know the the sort of political ones. One of the lines I've liked out of out of this is, um, "What is the job of a of a conservative government? Is to keep Australians uh, safe and secure." And it was demonstrably shown um, an inability due to their ideological leanings or policy um, standpoints or whatever during the bushfires to keep Australia safe and secure. And here is a chance to demonstrate uh, a conservative government keeping Australians more safe and secure than they would otherwise be. Mm. Now, Maria mentioned the that made the sort of comparison, very good one, between coronavirus and the bushfires, which we've been talking about. You're, you're very interested in the communication of science. That's one of the things you do here at ANU. That The broader kind of juxtaposition is the response to coronavirus virus compared to the response to climate change as a broader issue. And the government's clearly taking scientific advice on coronavirus, the best advice, medical advice, which is scientific advice about the coronavirus. It's still quibbling on the science of climate change. You know, there's a consensus that action needs to be very front-footed 
We're not seeing that on climate change. It's very easy to take scientific advice when there aren't particular electorates who are arguing for different sorts of things. There's no electorates out there in, that want coronavirus. It, it, no, no, that want coronavirus or that are... Uh, well, the jobs know, associated with it. Exactly. Yeah. Are, are, you know, uh, manifestly embedded in making the problem worse. There's no electorate in North Queensland where they've got a coronavirus factory. Um, that, that, that doesn't exist. <laughs> you, you, could, you could imagine a scenario. Uh, climate change, I mean, not to defend um, conservative governments around the world on this, is a wicked problem because of that fact. It, come, it cuts straight into the economy in ways that um, a coronavirus, for example... No one wants and everyone recognises the economic hits will be across the board and they'll hit us all in, in complicated ways, but it's not going to be hit, hit on the basis of our ideological leanings. So it is a tough one to try and get a parallel there, to try and say, yes, we can listen to scientists all the time um, and always do what scientists say. Yeah, but there's certainly groups of people around the country who don't want to listen on climate change. And humans are really bad at pricing in the costs of long-term downstream effects, whereas humans are very good at at recognising a problem that is really immediate, which is the other yeah. the other big distinction. We can see fear right in front of us, exactly. but whereas until this summer, the abstract costs of climate change were very hard to to understand for most people. You know, we could we could hear these scientific reports, you know, that would say certain graphs and certain figures, you know, these sorts of things. Whereas bushfires brought it home for a lot of people. There are a lot of people saying, oh, is this what climate change is going to be like? This is horrible. Uh, we didn't have that really so much before in Australia, whereas the fear from coronavirus is right there and, and it's visceral. It's, yeah, that's a really interesting point. I, I, um, I've been thinking about this a bit myself lately, that it's it, one of the things that we're kind of learning almost in, in, in real time about, about democracy is that as a weakness, it's not good as a system at dealing with a kind of a slowly evolving emergent problem where the pain of that problem can be put off, can be argued about, can be can be passed as it were. And when we think about uh, climate change, for example, and we think about the history of this debate over the last 20 years really and particularly over the last 10 years, it's not been difficult to create doubt about the, 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 the efficacy of policy or the justifications for it or the scale of the problem. And all you really need to do is create a small amount of doubt. And that, that, that in itself is the paralysis that some people have been looking for on the conservative side. Whereas the problem of the bushfires or the problem of this coronavirus, you can't really do that. You really have to act quickly. The debates themselves become you know, that whole debate space. Well, they're not becomes, abstract, are they? No, it's, yeah. it, that's a good point. They're literally not, life and death. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And it's right there and you either do the right thing or you don't do the right thing and it has real-time consequences. I don't think it's just slow-moving problems. Democracy is bad to deal with. You look at coronavirus and they wanted a new hospital built in Wuhan and when you live in a you know dictatorship like that, do you know what? They get built pretty quickly and you can you know lock people in their houses and do some pretty awful things too. I'm yeah. not advocating this sort of, uh, you know, system in Australia, but I think this is the problem when we have to take in a range of voices and we can't just tell people what to do. Just, just in, to, uh, not to, to critique the Chinese response, I think they can move very quickly on certain sorts of things, but there are some things coming across that um, authoritarian governments are not great at spreading information throughout. You know, when there is, you know, how many people were sick, things like that don't spread well throughout a system because there is a lot of face saving, potentially lying, um, that may make problems worse. So authoritarian governments aren't perfect at these sorts of scenarios which well. the government were kind of interesting on on the weekend about this they sort of said we currently have a ban on going to china and iran and they said we won't be able to make too many more of that and reading between the lines on that it was countries where they perhaps think the health authorities aren't being as upfront yeah. so it suggests that 
the figures coming out of South Korea or Italy, they perhaps have a bit more credit than the ones coming out of the other two countries. And that's why, given those checks aren't happening at that end, we're going to make sure they're happening at yeah. this end. That's true. Although I did see some coverage from my old mate and colleague at Fairfax, Bevan Shields, who's now the um, Europe correspondent, uh, who he, he, I think I think it was his report, one of the reports I read anyway, uh, where um, – you know, he was standing at the um, you know the edge of a, an exclusion zone or a, um, a a zone where you know one side it was uh, people who uh, you know could be uh, infected and the other side it was uh, supposedly open and and it was a fairly porous sort of border. You know, some guy went through on a on a bike and no one stopped him it's and stuff. An, you know. Yeah, it's an incredible problem. And the fact that they said you know we're now considering maybe putting northern you know banning people coming in from northern Italy. What does that even mean? Like northern Italy has borders with a range of different countries. They can just flip over the border and come in many different ways. So I think yeah. once we start putting bans on Europe, uh, I guess, you know, it sort of becomes something that we can't really control. And that's, that's uh, uh, you know, being considered in Britain at the moment. <laughs> I mean, you know, post-Brexit Britain. Turns out Brexit hasn't protected them from this um, or much else really. Um, but, um, you know, they're talking about, uh, you know, quite severe travel restrictions as well. And I just think all of this speaks to... You know, the obvious health implications of, of this, which are dire, but also it's very hard not to see severe economic shock from this. And we've already seen trillions wiped off equities markets in the US and, and in Australia uh, and in other places. And, you know, it's hard to imagine that rebounding anytime soon, which brings us interestingly to the question of the surplus. I mean, What's everyone's judgment about how critical uh, delivering a surplus is, given how much the the coalition made of it? I mean, my own view is that people would expect them to do the right thing rather than do the political thing, uh, which may be where the government's going to have to end up. But I've seen some commentators saying that Labor is going to really stick it to them if they don't deliver this surplus. I mean, do, do voters care about a surplus as an abstract idea, Maria? I, I think I'm the wrong person to ask about this in a way because I've always thought that the surplus promise like was an absurd promise to make. Why would you ever do that? And then, but it's kind of a cipher for economic uh, management. Yeah, I, I, no, I, I mean, like, okay. So when I when I think with my like, if I was a political staffer hat on, right? Like, yeah, that makes sense. And then they've, they've made this promise so explicitly. They've made mugs. I really like one of those mugs. If I could get one well, of those mugs, that'd be like great. Mugs, They're anyway. sold out. Yeah, I saw that. As of Friday. Sad. And so I can kind of sort of see why rhetorically they they need to kind of stick to that because everything is sort of zero sum and every minute they explain why they've not gotten to surplus is a wasted minute. And, you know, the interview with Josh Frydenberg and Fran Kelly last week where she kind of harangued him over that is, is exactly the reason why they'd be um, afraid to do, to do this. But I, I guess what is in some ways I think people are – I think voters are more re- reasonable and realistic than politicians give them credit for. And I guess it really depends on what politicians do. Like is Labor shameless enough to shellac this government uphill and down Dale despite circumstances, despite the coronavirus? I don't know. Like I don't know if they are really that shameless enough. And, and I guess, Annika, you'd have a better grip on this than any of us. Like what's the government's own thinking? Like how important do they think it is to deliver this surplus? The gist I'm getting that there are some within the government that still think – that's what they have to do. And I would suspect most of those would be in marginal seats, people that went out there and think that perhaps this is why they got the 500 extra votes that got them over the line. I think you're right to think most Australians actually do understand circumstances happen. And I think Labor will be put in a really difficult position here because 
I think they still have an opportunity to use it. I think they have an opportunity to use it in the way to say, say with climate change, well, if this keeps happening, how are you going to budget for this? Surely just, you know, getting ahead of the curve is going to help. But I think it would be a very brave opposition that decided to attack them too vigorously for protecting Australians or, you know, investing money in tourism or giving tax breaks to small businesses and fire areas. I think it's, it is a difficult position for Josh Frydenberg and it's definitely a difficult position for any coalition government to come out and say, well, actually, we didn't quite get there on the numbers and we couldn't balance the books in the exact way we had predicted. I think this is an unusual time and Labor would be hard-pressed to do anything. And I think we're seeing a different view from Anthony Albanese to we saw with Bill Shorten too. During the bushfires, he seemed to be slightly more bipartisan. He definitely still threw th- things out there and tried to wedge the government a little bit. And But I think there was less um, attack. And he has said before he doesn't want to be in opposition for opposition's sake. He thinks people are sick of the bickering. Now, a lot of oppositions follow, you know, promise this too. I've seen it over and over again. And in the end, they do get on the attack. But early doors, I don't think th- two years out from an election, there is that much mileage they're going to get in taking them too strongly on this. Will, you have a view on Yeah, that? no, I, I don't see that Labor has a free kick on this at all. I think that, yes, the government is somewhat hoisted by their own petard. But if Labor doesn't acknowledge that circumstances change, events ha- happen, and the voters in voter land um, will recognise that as well. So, yeah, there may be some questioning. There will certainly be journalists who, who pursue this line of inquiry. But I, I don't see a fruitful um, place for Labor to to push this line, and maybe this is this maybe this is a good moment in Australian politics where both parties can dial down on the surplus rhetoric um, and get to a place where we recognise, as I'd say most people know, surpluses are for spending. Good times, sure, put money in the bank and and build up something for um, economic security later, and that's how we all think of our own personal finances. That there comes a time when we should invest and we should spend, and if if coronavirus, uh, a massive global shock like this isn't one of those, then I don't know what is. So I think I think that we may have an opportunity to move shift the rhetoric on this. And I think bit. that plays into the coalition's, you know, idea that we're better economic managers, which is, you know, their mantra. It's to say, well, when things like this come along, we're ready to go. And I think that's the way they'll be trying to spin it. Well, we can respond to this because we were in a good position to do so. Don't which is true. Yeah. Which is true, but it was also true during the GFC, and indeed, uh, you know, Peter Costello and 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 the Liberals that followed him were able to say that Labor was able to respond to the GFC. You know, the Rudd Swan uh, operation that was in government by then was able to respond to the GFC because you know there was a significant surplus and Commonwealth debt had been paid down mm-hmm. and so forth. All of which was true, but nonetheless. The coalition prosecuted a very hard argument against Labor for sending the books back into the red uh, when, in fact, Australia, of course, became one of very few countries not to go into recession and to survive the GFC well because it took that advice from Treasury, go early, go hard, go households and all of that Mm. sort of stuff. So, you know, I I guess that uh, my my view is we're unlikely to see Cups saying back in deficit uh, put out by the coalition, even though, as you say, Annika, that's that's um, really what they will effectively be doing as a policy instrument, uh, presumably, and that is uh, spending more money than we've got in the coffers in order to protect growth, particularly in those sectors that are being hammered. I, I imagine Labor is thirsty for some form of revenge, yeah, I given, given, given this, this, the shameless way in which the 
the coalition went after uh, their spending um, in the GFC, and part of that was to do with lab- lab- that. Part of that was Labor's fault because they sort of wanted to have their cake and eat it too. Like we'll have an education revolution and whack money out the door immediately. Like it's going to be a high quality spend, and perhaps that might be the space in which Labor chooses to critique the government. Um, you know, potentially in how they spend uh, this money to stimulate the economy, which ties into the narrative around spending decisions made by this government with processes that may or may not be, uh, you know. All that rigorous. Yes, or, 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 or above board. It does suggest, though, that, that in some ways the government haven't been doing very much over the last six months, year, on the economy. We've had a fairly lacklustre economy throughout this period, mm. and they've been reluctant to do anything. Now maybe they'll, they'll do something with the coronavirus hit, but I think there is a little bit there to say, you know, governments need to step up a little bit earlier than just waiting to see what the effects well, will be. Well, it'll be fascinating to see if the Reserve Bank does move and uh, what its reasoning is because we, I wouldn't be surprised to see a little bit stiffer language in the Reserve Bank's justification if that is the case just because we know there's been this you know sort of low-level critique, hints I guess coming from the Reserve Bank that would like to see more done on the fiscal policy side. Let's take a quick break and we'll re- continue this excellent discussion in just a moment. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Australia's bushfire season was devastating and unprecedented. More than 20% of the country's forest burned, destroying buildings, taking lives and decimating animal populations and biodiversity. But this season's fires haven't just changed the physical landscape, but also the political one. They've sparked a national conversation on fire management, the impact on vulnerable communities and how the country needs to tackle climate change. Join the team from Policy Forum Pod at a very special live event where we look at what comes next. With a panel of experts, we'll examine the long-term impacts of the bushfires on Australia's economy, health and biodiversity and look forward to what the country could and should be doing in the wake of the crisis. Australia Ablaze What Next takes place at the Australian National University on Tuesday the 24th of March. Register for this free event at policyforum.net forward slash events. You're with Mark Kenny, Maria Taflaga, Will Grant and Annika Smethurst on Democracy Sausage. As you know, let's um, just uh, consider a few uh, housekeeping things. Next week, we'll be recording our second ever Ask Policy Forum podcast, the podcast where you ask the questions. I'll be hosting what is sure to be a fairly riotous discussion if last time is anything to go by. So now is the time to get your questions in. What do you want to know from our panel? It can be serious or stupid. Our experts are both. And standing by to respond. To send us your questions and get access to the pod, jump onto Policy Forum Pod on Facebook and join the pod squad or tweet us at Ask Policy Forum. Now, let's look at this issue of press freedom, which, of course, has been a, an enduring issue 
for some time now and a subject uncomfortably close to your heart, Annika, I guess, being involved in um, you know, the subject of police raids, what, some nine months ago. The Greens Senator Sarah, Sarah Hanson-Young uh, is chairing a Senate inquiry into press freedom uh, and she's proposing a bill on this. Uh, what's your assessment of where we are up to? Uh, I think the, the Joint uh, Committee on Intelligence and Security Matters has also been considering this issue. Are we getting any movement or would we like to see any movement? Oh, look, I appreciate any intervention and suggestion of reform in this area, but I must just my putting on my pragmatic political hat. I don't think a bill put forward by Sarah Green's Senator Sarah Hanson-Young is uh, going to get the result that she hopes. Look, it has some interesting things in it. Uh, one of the ones is being able to contest a warrant, mm. which is something that happens in the UK. It doesn't mean journalists are above the law as uh, you know people keep claiming is what we want. It just means that there's an extra, I guess, added level of um, accountability when it comes to raiding a journalist's home. Now, there is another committee looking into this. As you say, it's um, Parliament's Joint Intelligence Committee and all bar recently, most of their suggestions do turn into law. It's a highly bipartisan um, committee. It's a secret committee. Um, and from all reports, not that they do report, it's kind of like Fight Club. You don't know what happens in them, not even when they meet. But when you do hear about what goes on in there, they do um, have very constructive meetings. And look, they've delayed their report by a couple of, I think, a couple of times now. They're waiting on Home Affairs to make a submission. Yeah, on they are. And it, it looks like they're getting a lot closer to it. And I think we probably lay more of um, our chances on what comes out of that committee. And interestingly, they did have um, a suggestion last week from the AFP that it wouldn't be a necessary a chance, necessarily a chance to review a warrant before they step foot on a property. In my case, you know, to be able to have done that back then, not to go to the High Court, which is what we're waiting for now, uh, would have been marvellous. But it would just be sort of another sort of structural level where public servants or people considered independent from the political process would decide whether there was merit in going into a journalist's house to find documents and instead that perhaps the media organisation or journalists would be asked to hand over so-called documents or text messages or whatever they thought was necessary. And that would be a more of a conversation and discussion process as opposed to showing up with seven police and a warrant. The government's been sort of, I guess, somewhat embarrassed by this whole process and probably the police have too to some extent. I mean, you know, I think your, your view is that, uh, and it's mine as well, is that um, they're pretty uncomfortable, the AFP, with sort of getting caught in these political storms. Um, they seem pretty uncomfortable about investigating Angus Taylor's, uh, you know, dodgy letter that he sent to uh, to um, the Sydney City Council as well. So um, it's, certainly they're un, uh, unhappy with being in the middle of these kinds of maelstroms. But initially, uh, the Attorney General, Christian Porter, said that, you know, it seemed to be he was suggesting that there wouldn't be these kinds of raids in the future without at least coming to him first, that as Attorney General, he would sign off on it. It now seems that there's a move, as you've just been talking about, to abstract it and, and a further level away and have some sort of independent non-political assessment of whether there is a justification for a search warrant to be granted. Yeah, the Christian Porter one was interesting because they actually said it wasn't about raids, it would have been about prosecution. So in order to prosecute me or any other journalist, if they'd, if the investigation got to that stage, before that happened, they'd have to go over and say to Christian Porter, do we think this is a good idea? And he would get the final say. Now, people saw that as a bit of a win for me, saying, oh, the government won't prosecute you. That, yeah, be because they'd be, they'd be sort of aware of the political blowback yeah, and wouldn't want to do it. But, but it would put me or any future journalist in, a, in this position in a very difficult position about 
reporting. Uh, Christian Porter is one of 226, seven MPs I think we have up there at the moment. And what if I were to find some sort of information on him? You know, would I want to write that story Mm. knowing that that's the man that could decide whether I get prosecuted or not? And that doesn't just account for me, it counts for everybody. Now, Christian Porter is a, you know, a good minister and has a lot on his plate. And he has most of the government on his plate, it seems to me. He does. He's probably the biggest businessman. And I don't want to, you know, suggest that he would not be able to remove himself from whatever was reported on him. But we don't know who future journalists are going to be, who future attorneys general are going to be. And I think it's just a dangerous precedence to put uh, that level of political um, sort of a checkpoint there. So, I well, we see the way a political uh, attorney general operates in the US, and it's uh, it's a disgrace. It really is. The separation between the attorney general there and the administration is 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 um, so pathetic that uh, we we you know we have William Barr eff- effectively running protection for the president all the time. Um, we don't want that kind of system here. And one way not to head down that path is to not give attorneys general. That kind of discretionary power, particularly in the very much in the cut and thrust of mm. of political debate and political reportage in this country. Yeah, I wouldn't think the government would would want it either. And one of the interesting things around my case that came up compared to the ABC was the fact that they raided my personal home and not my office. Mm. And while this has never been admitted in any way, the understanding is in order to raid Parliament House, which has happened before, um, they have to get approval to come on site from both the Speaker and the President. And that puts the government, although they're meant to be apolitical figures, in a really difficult position, knowing that you know they've ticked off to allow that to happen. So the government don't want to be involved in these things often. It, it gives them, you know, it involves them and it becomes very challenging for them. The benefit this government's had in my case, while privately I know a lot of them are not in favour of what happened, it's actually furious about what has happened. They've been able to say throughout this, we didn't know it was happening, we had nothing to do with this, um, which has, I guess, worked in their favour um, politically. It goes to the the point that um, a lot of the problems with the current system is that these these assessments and this the critique and these judgments are actually happening after the fact, and that there is like very little opportunity to sort of check some of these decisions before the fact, which is sort of the point of the UK model in which media organisations are able to contest the warrant, right, to sort of put it to some form of test beforehand. But it does sort of raise the issue around. The, the sort of role of the AFP and uh, these sort of institutions we have to investigate or lack of institutions to investigate uh, ministers and sort of who decision makers are. So you sort of, Annika, you kind of mentioned that people behind the scenes are, are upset. So, I mean, has there been like organization across parties to try to resolve this issue or is it sort of more siloed within parties or are people just angry but nothing's really? Look, I think we're waiting for the intelligence committee. That is, you know, they call it the very powerful committee. and It's always described as the powerful joint. (laughs) Yeah, and people go, oh, well, all committees are powerful. No, this one's really powerful because most of what they say happens. And it excludes the crossbench. It's exclusively Labor and coalition, isn't it? Absolutely. And leaks don't usually come out of it. Um, Their best and brightest are usually put on it. Um, I hate to say that in case people are desperately trying to get on it and they're never getting their hand up. There's a reason for that. They there are good people, pe- and we should say there are good people on the crossbench who should be on it. People like Andrew Wilkie, who have a very strong record in this area, you know, credentials. Rex Patrick in, has a strong interest Rex in this Patrick area as well. Uh, but exactly. look, it is a it's a good committee, and 
we would like to we, – we're interested in the process. Look, some of the things the Coalition of Media Organisations is asking for, we think we can do without this sort of committee. Changes to FOI, defam- defamation sort of changes that are holding up Australian media's ability to report on things we think we should and we think the people have a right to know. Uh, having said that, we do understand process. So I think, yeah, it, it's strange for me because I walk around Parliament House, I work there. And I have people from both sides of parliament come up to me and say, this is outrageous. We can't believe this is what happened to you. Not everybody agrees with that, but there is support from both sides of government. And I think people don't want this to happen again. I don't think the government have enjoyed this, um, having you know all the media organisations in Australia rally against them. And it's a pretty rare thing for them because usually they divide and conquer and play favourites and you know punish and give scoops and, and use the sort of competition between media organisations to their advantage and why wouldn't they? But all of a sudden when you come together and you're asking for these things, the pressure's really on them to do something. But in, in a way, it's, it's a good point, but in a way it's also, Will, a bit like being sort of lashed with a wet lettuce because this is kind of a bubble preoccupation mm-hmm. to, to use Scott Morrison's own language. There's no really huge clamour out there in the public for media to have greater freedom, for journalists to be you know, given more, more authority, is there? I think that's a really interesting question because the details of this, absolutely. This is um, essentially a bubble sort of question if we're going to use that language. You know, I've got, I've got to confess, I, I don't know all of the details of um, of what happened to you, Annika, and I don't know all of the details of this story and, and what you're calling for. But in general, I'd say that um, – this is twice I've used this phrase – voters out in voter land are stop, not – Stop saying that. I know. I know. It's terrible. I'm a voter out in voter land. Um, exactly. But we are, we're, we're not super keen at – um, any involvement of of AFP in political process there, and we also deep down recognise that um, that journalists should be free to um, hold politicians to account. So whilst the, the the complexities of this, yes, we don't know where this will end up, and and I, I don't think Australians really care um, too deeply about what the details are, but they do believe that um, journalists working in the best interests of the country is an important thing. And so I think yes, it's bubbled, but there, it does resonate. With, with the world out there in terms of free speech? I think we have a real uphill battle. I think people hate journalists and mm. we actually, stats tell us this all the time. Surveys do. We're slightly loved more than politicians and maybe above that's the a, That's an important point. But compared to, you know, doctors, nurses, doc, police, we're well far down the list, which is a real struggle. It, think, it is when you think about it in terms of trust particularly because if you don't trust a class of people, you're unlikely to, be getting, to get all animated about them not having special privileges, hundred percent. And I, I am hesitant to ever call them special privileges. I just think of no, an environment in which we could operate seen. that doesn't make our job illegal. And I think one of the biggest things is the way uh, people don't understand how the media works, I think, which is a problem for civic, the way civics is taught and a lot of, and our job of telling people how we do a job. It doesn't matter what, you know, newspaper you read or television report you see, I constantly see comments, whether it be underneath or online, that say, well, if this is true, that's astonishing. And the fact that, you know, they think that you'd put something in the paper that blindly wasn't true, it might have a spin or a different angle, but you can't do that. You get in trouble if you put things in the paper that aren't. But people still believe that that is what happens. So trying to then go out and say, actually, you know what, we want some more powers to write crap you think that doesn't believe, you don't believe, is a huge battle. But I think the way we do it, and this is why I was trying to say it's your right to know. So what if we had a banking royal commission if 
Mm. Journalists didn't write stories about how bad the banks were. No. Would we have a banking, uh, would we have a royal commission into aged care homes unless we had the exposure that happened? So I think that's the way we need to remind people of this. Having said all that, that it's an uphill task, I think the support I have had, and people stop me in the street and say, are you the girl whose house was raided? And I think people genuinely feel that police, seven police coming into a journalist's house and raiding it is wrong. I don't. I think they can say that is wrong. Whether they agree that we need more rights, I don't think there was anybody out there going, that was a great thing that the cops did. But I guess this is the thing about surveys, right? Like if you are, if you ask people, journalists, like you don't really know which journalists they're thinking of, right? Like they might be thinking about celebrity journalists or a current affair journalist. If you were to, to dig, um, into what people actually mean about which types of journalists, you might find that actually people are far more concerned about one type of journalist house being raided or, or whether or not they think one type of journalist is more likely to lie than another type of journalist, depending on what they do. But I want to go back to the, this point we were talking about, right? Like that the uh, politicians don't like the fact that the media has united against them. And I guess what this sort of shows is why the prime minister uses a term like the Canberra bubble, because this is, as we've been discussing, it's absolutely elite discourse. And But even though we don't think that voters are that exercised specifically on the details about this issue, issue, the fact that this is a, a focus of elite discourse means that they don't that they don't they can't really escape talking about it because everyone is united on it, which is why they like to use terms like the Canberra bubble, because it's a way of potently dismissing the concerns of elites, which happen to be often related to really abstract ideas about, you know, political discourse or how institutions function. It's the same with the sports rot stuff, yeah, right? And it's a, that's right. It's a way of delegitimizing it as an exactly. issue by, by because the, the the subtext there or the dog whistle, if I can put it like that, there is this is not the sort of thing that matters to ordinary Australians or as Scott Morrison likes to describe them, yeah, quiet Australians. Exactly. They're Which, not exercised by this. If you're preoccupied by it, well, you can do so, but I'm here representing you know, the good folk, the good silent folk in exactly. the majority and, and they're not worried about press freedom. And most freedom. journalists think they're representing the public interest, particularly yeah. ones that cover federal politics. Yeah, and I think the idea that press freedom doesn't, you know, as a grand idea, doesn't keep people up at night is 100% true. But walk in any tea room in the country and, you know, I will dare say a lot of papers will be there, but I tell you what will be there, probably the Herald Sun on the tally. And that's how people get their news. And, you know, the idea, these things that we want, the changes we want will make the quality of story that goes in our papers and other papers better and therefore people will value it more. So it's cyclical too. We feel we can deliver a better product if there's changes to defamation laws, freedom of information laws, um, you know, secrecy laws. And if we are to, you know, actually have some of those changes, our product will be better and maybe people might want to defend us more. So we're in a kind of tricky position until Mm. that happens. I think, you know, the... People may not be exercised by um, by any this case or any other, but I think definitely when you phrase it in those terms of um, seven police officers raiding your house, um, that's something that most people out there think. Well, if you, they'll fall off the fence, yeah, you know, they may not know anything before, but you say that and you say that's not Australia. That's, that's not something right. that we want yep. to see in Australia. Whatever the facts of the matter are, there must have been a better way to to go through go through the motions on on this case, and so people fall off the off the fence there and say no. No, that's that's Russia, not Australia. Yeah, and I look, 
I never wanted to be the poster girl for this. Most journalists, any self-respecting journalist doesn't want the story to be about them. I've hated the last nine months, but I think the fact that it was my home, I was a female living alone. I'm, you know, I didn't have a big burly husband or dog there. There was very, there was optics that really struck home for people compared to the ABC raid the next day, which was in an office. It was a lot of people in suits sitting around, you know, this was me and my home. My rented camera. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that actually because it is the the personal toll of this has been, um, you know, quite considerable. I guess you have to, you've had to shoulder that, as you say, you've just so eloquently put it, um, effectively by yourself. I'm not making any reflection on your company, which has provided uh, all of the support that could be expected, as I understand it. But uh, it's, uh, it must have been a, a you know, very taxing sort of time over the last, as you say, nine months since it's then. It's not been fun. And the, the thing I've learned is, you know, people have been nice. They, oh, I'm really sorry for what's happening to you. Um, but I wake up every morning knowing today could be the day they come back and arrest me. I could go to jail. I could actually go to jail. They haven't ruled out prosecuting me. And... I guess it's probably like having some sort of, you know, terrible thing happen to you. You laugh it off some days and then some days you're just angry. And the other thing I've realised is the jokes. People make jokes about me going to jail every day. I run into people and they don't know what to say. So they make a joke about it. And it's a Mm. very Australian thing to do. And people don't mean any harm by it. But it's in the back of my mind every single day. And until they rule out prosecuting me, I will never... It's not like I, I when I run into these people and they say these things, I go, oh, I'd forgotten about it for 10 minutes. Thank you for bringing that back because that's all I think about. And I've actually had some moments where I'm like, oh, I could two years. Okay, I guess, you know, perhaps I'll write a book or like go to the gym every day or something if I'm in jail. But five years seems like quite a lot. Like I've actually had these sort of irrational conversations in my head about how my life would actually be should I end up in jail. So it is uh, not a fun time. Um, mm. But having, you know, I don't want to say, if you see me keep making jokes, please, because I'd prefer that than you being all serious. Does it, so. does it have a chilling effect on your on your decisions in terms of work, in terms of what you're reporting? Well, on all I wanted to or? do was get back to going to work. And unsurprisingly, it took a while to get people to talk to me again because there is an assumption my phone is, you know, being monitored or this could happen again. So just even building up trust from people that I'd been working with. I've been in political press galleries for almost 10 years now. I did feel for a while I had to go back to square one. That's not necessarily the case, but all I've wanted to do is get back to reporting and I'm still not quite there yet. Well, can I just say, Annika, it was a cracking yarn and since then we've seen (laughs) it's been vindicated anyway by discussions of uh, AST using it, you know, being able to use its uh, surveillance powers inwardly, that is, within Australia as distinct from exclusively outside. So um, cracking piece of journalism. It's been terrific having you on the podcast. I hope we can have you back at some stage soon. Uh, Thanks also to Will Grant and to Maria Tafaga. Uh, we'll have to wrap it up there. If you want to contact us, you can do so on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's A-P-P-S Policy Forum. The Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod. And you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. Uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.